How much hardship do you have to endure before you lose your joy? There are certain things that if don't work out well for you that your joy disappears. Maybe it's your favorite sport team loses. Does that do it for you to lose your joy over that? Well, what if you combine your favorite sports team losing with the stock market dropping 300 points in one day? Is that do you lose your joy over that? Or if you don't get the sufficient amount of likes on your Instagram posts, does that do it for you? What is the level that is required for you to lose your joy? This is an important question, as silly as it may sound. Maybe what's required to lose your joy is not feeling well or when you don't get the raise or bonus you were hoping for or hearing a hurtful comment from someone you love, then does your joy disappear? These things are certainly hard to deal with, but what if it gets worse? What if your marriage begins to fall apart or you lose your job or you have a death in the family or a malignant diagnosis? Then do you lose your joy? What does it take to lose your joy? One of the benefits of thinking about these kinds of things is that it can help you discover the depth of your faith. The Apostle Paul said, examine yourself. In order to determine the the depth of your spiritual life, you you just have to figure out what it takes to rob you of your God-given joy. The smaller the challenge that robs you of your joy, the weaker your faith. Conversely, the greater the challenge that robs you of your joy, the deeper your faith I think Jesus addressed this in John 15. He said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So along with conversion, regeneration comes divine joy. And so whatever it takes to dismiss that joy is the level of your spiritual growth, your spiritual depth. So if it takes very little to rob you of your joy, it means that your spiritual life is fairly weak. If it takes a lot to rob you of your God-given joy, then your spiritual life will be stronger. If your God-given joy is immovable, then of course your spiritual life is stalwart. The Apostle Paul's joy was immovable. We never read of the Apostle Paul losing his joy. Even when he said he despaired of life, even when he was discouraged, he said he was joyful in the discouragement. His close relationship with Christ gave him a godly perspective. This perspective allowed him to trust God to orchestrate his circumstances for God's glory, for the gospel's progress, and for Paul's joy. So what kind of circumstances does it take for you to lose your joy? We know because we've studied James and we've studied Psalm 119 together that none of us are exempt from difficult circumstances. We all go through them. The New Testament authors consistently remind us of this reality and tell us not to be surprised when it happens. We just read earlier from James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy when you encounter trials. You're going to face them. What level of trial robs you of your joy? 
Well, today's passage in Philippians 1 helps us think about our circumstances a little more clearly, and I think talks to us powerfully about the importance of maintaining a joyful outlook in our circumstances. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to study verses 12 through 18 together. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Paul wrote, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So what we see here in these verses is, I think, some really important, basic, fundamental perspective issues. I want to talk to you about two points. The first being this. God uses my circumstances to influence the unsaved in my life. We'll see this in verses 12 and 13. God uses my circumstances to influence the unsaved in my life. Why does God put us into certain circumstances? I mean, if God loves us, and he knows that we're happier when things are going well, why doesn't he just keep our circumstances positive? I mean, I could be a much better Christian if my circumstances were better, right? Think about the witness I could be if I made more money or if I had a more comfortable situation. Uh, of course, we know that's faulty thinking, of course. Um, we know that rough seas make good sailors. We know that high winds make strong trees. And so good circumstances really should not have much to do with our level of joy as Christians. The immovable foundation of our joy is that God loves us in Christ and has wiped away all of our sins so that we might commune with him daily throughout eternity. That's the foundation of our joy. Not whether or not the weather's nice. No matter what our circumstances may be, this truth remains. This foundation is critically important that God loves us in Christ and has wiped away all of our sins so that we might commune with our Father in heaven forever. So God strategically uses difficulty to build up our spiritual effectiveness. That's why Paul was going through what he was going through. This is why you are going through what you are going through. Look at verse 12. He says, what has happened to me, referring to his current circumstances primarily, but also looking back to what has all transpired in getting to this point. You remember Paul's history in getting to the Roman prison. He was uh, falsely accused and arrested in Jerusalem. 
underwent a mob beating that almost took his life, spent two years in the Caesarean jail entertaining whoever the, the king wanted to bring in for entertainment, like a monkey at the circus. Hey, bring out the, the prisoner Paul. And let's listen to him argue about some stuff. And then being shipped off to Rome, the ship sinks, almost kills him and the whole crew. He has to swim ashore where he gets bit by a snake. Then he gets back on a ship and sent to Rome where he walks off the ship, chained to a bunch of murderers and thieves. He had some hard times that he had faced. He says, verse 12, I want you to know that what has happened to me, that's what he was talking about. All this negative stuff, his difficult circumstances. Now the question is, was God in charge of all that stuff? Was God really in charge of the ship sinking and the snake biting and everything else? Well, what do you believe about Scripture? What do you believe about God? We believe and teach that God is sovereign over all circumstances, especially our suffering. He has different purposes for our suffering, of course. But Paul's suffering was ordained by God so that the gospel would spread. Paul's circumstances didn't affect his joy or the progress of the gospel because Paul knew that God was in control. In fact, the word really in verse 12 is really important. Look at the word really. I want you to know, brothers, that what was happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In fact, in, instead of being impeding my joy and impeding the gospel, it's really the exact opposite. My circumstances are the platform for the gospel. My circumstances are what motivates my joy, knowing that God is in control. Great things were happening because of his circumstances. These verses here present a clear theology of suffering, which must include a purposeful evangelistic benefit to hardship. Paul isn't concerned with his difficult circumstances, but with the advance of the gospel. Paul knew that his difficult circumstances were the very things that gave him a place to speak from. How else was he going to get the gospel into the Roman hierarchy? God had an idea. You see, God uses our circumstances to influence the unsaved. He used Paul. He used countless other Christians throughout human history. And he's using yours currently. Specifically, he uses your circumstances to influence the unsaved who are immediately around you. In Paul's case, they were literally chained to him. <laughs> they were chained to Paul. The Roman imperial guard took turns being chained to Paul. I would say that's immediately around him. He was most likely chained to a Roman soldier this entire time. He had no privacy, no freedom, but when he spoke of the gospel or conversed with Christians that would come visit him, the Roman guards would hear the gospel. How else are you going to get that kind of an audience? I'm pretty sure if he said, hey, we're going to have a gospel meeting down at the tent on the corner, all of them would have showed up. Probably not. But if they were assigned to him, 
during their guard duty, they were there. Every few hours, the guard duty would rotate. Didn't take long for the reputation of Paul being a God-fearing man in chains because of his faith, not because he was a thug, to spread to the entire battalion. About 9,000 deep, according to historical records. So the whole imperial guard, the ones who also guarded Caesar, <laughs> were in the prison with Paul hearing the gospel. So you get to the end of this book. In chapter 4, verse 22, he says to the Philippians, And all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. How do you suppose they heard? Paul was in prison being assigned imperial guards who took the gospel back to the imperial court who won people in Caesar's household to Christ. The gospel was advancing, ringing out. What an exemplary attitude that Paul had about the, all of this. How's our attitude in comparison? Everything in his life was of value or not to the degree that it was aff affected the progress of the gospel. So Paul valued it if, it's, if it affected the progress. He devalued it if it didn't. So Paul thought about things. Acts chapter 20 verse 24, this is what Paul said about this. But I do not account my life as of any value, nor as, a, as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what my life is all about. So question, Sun Valley Church, do I judge my circumstances on whether or not they have helped spread the gospel or whether or not they make me comfortable? Look at the word advance. They've, the circumstances have served to advance the gospel, this is an important word. It's not just the gospel moving forward in a certain direction, no. The word Paul chose to use here was used to describe what a military scout would be required to do to get through some rough terrain. He would have to cut, hack, and strain through dense underbrush and over high mountains to get the job done. That's the word Paul used. It includes the idea of extreme effort to make sure the gospel's moving forward. When we share the gospel, we can expect some significant resistance, can't we? Isn't the gospel contrary to our cultural direction? Isn't the gospel contrary to the will of Satan, the enemy? Isn't the gospel contrary to human pride? Yes, to all those, which requires this cutting, hacking, and straining to get the gospel out. You see, the gospel rarely advances like sailboats on warm, breezy days. Sit back on the head on the side of the nice sailboat, and boy, look at the progress we're making here. Isn't this awesome? That doesn't happen with the gospel message. It requires some cutting, hacking, and straining, which is why Paul used that word. See, friends, what are you suffering with that you think is restricting you? Paul was suffering with chains. What chains are restricting you, you, 
Let me, let me give you some ideas. Are you chained to your job? Do you feel like it's too restrictive? Are you chained to your home because of young children? Do you think your income is restricting you? Maybe you feel chained to a sick bed or unable to be outside and live life like your neighbors. You know, your chains, of course, may be different than Paul's, but they're chains. How do you view them? Paul's attitude towards chains is something that we can learn from, I think. Our circumstances are ordained by God, just like Paul's. So, so that we can be a light in the darkness where we work, where we live, in our neighborhoods, to those who are immediately around us. To those who might be chained with us at work. To other young mothers who have children in the home. Can you say what Paul said in verse 12? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul's influence went beyond the guards, though. Look at the next verse. It says his influence spread to all the rest. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And that's the first group. Those were the ones chained to him. The second group, and to all the rest of my imprisonment for Christ. Who's that group? That's those who are watching. Those who are listening. All the rest are those who were on the periphery. Those on the periphery in our lives are those who we may not be aware of watching, but are. They might be co-workers. They might be your boss's boss. They might be your neighbor's neighbor. They might be your in-law's in-laws. You'd be surprised the number of people who are paying attention to your life, especially since you claim to be a Christian. Second point I want to make from these few verses found in verses 14 through 18 God uses my circumstances to influence the saved not just the unsaved but the saved it's wonderful to know isn't it see our God use us in circumstances to bring people to Christ to see the situations we're in present an opportunity a platform to speak of Christ to our neighbors our co-workers that's a wonderful thing but it's another beautiful thing to see him use our difficulty, our circumstances that are challenging, to encourage other believers. Evidently, God uses your circumstances like he did Paul's to encourage fellow Christians. Look at this with me. Paul's circumstances and attitude had a great effect on the Christians around him in verses 14 through 18. We see two groups in those few verses that are influenced by Paul's circumstances. The first group is those with good motives. Do you see that there? And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word of Christ without fear. Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter do so out of love. These are the goodwill, out of love kind of Christians, good motive type people. That's the first group that I want to draw your attention to whose lives were influenced by Paul and his attitude within his dire circumstances. These were, I think, gospel-centered, grace-driven, mission-minded kind of people. 
Because of Paul's willingness to joyfully share the gospel, no matter what his circumstances, it gave courage to other Christians who were watching, but just a little timid. There are countless stories that illustrate how this works. One is the, in the former Soviet Union, where the persecution of the Christians was at its peak a while ago. A group of Christians were taken, taken out into the middle of, of a frozen lake in the middle of winter with very little clothing on to motivate their recanting of faith. And as the guarding soldiers watched the Christians freeze and drop one by one, one of the guards put down his rifle, took off his outer garments, and walked out onto the frozen lake to join his fellow Christians. He too was a believer. He too had gained courage to stand for Christ when he saw them fearlessly standing for him also. As I was reading uh, in preparation for this sermon, I came across this quote in one of the commentaries. The commentator said, a whiff of persecution sometimes puts a backbone into an otherwise timid Christian. What he's saying is, what courage is contagious. If you'll just be courageous, it might help me. If you'll just stand up for Christ, it'll help me. Your faithful, fearless, and courageous testimony for Christ, no matter what your circumstances, will always affect the courage of weaker Christians around you. Your example is crucial. It may not come to freezing to death on a frozen lake, but it could come to be as simple as praying over your food in public. It could be as innocuous as not laughing at a shady joke or joining in hurtful gossip. That would give courage to another weaker Christian to stand up and honor Christ. I can personally relate to the impact of suffering circumstances affecting other Christians. You've heard this story before, but I'm going to share it again. My parents were um, missionaries, as you knew. But why they became missionaries is the point I want to make. In 1956, five missionaries died in Ecuador, South America. And that, that story quickly made it back to the States. My parents were young parents. I had two older siblings. I was two years old. My parents heard this news. And as many other North American Christians, they signed up for missionary service because of the suffering of those five families in Ecuador. This excruciating circumstances of those five faithful families was used by God to influence my parents, who influenced me, and I believe I'm in ministry today because of that influence influencing you every week because of the difficult circumstances of five missionary couples in the 1950s. And by the way, it didn't start with them. <laughs> what influenced those five missionary families? The faithfulness of others before them. Who is your faithful service, your faithful suffering going to influence in the future? Are you living in such a way that three generations from now will be affecting how they think and live because of your suffering, because of your life, your practices? God intends it to be. 
So Paul knew that his circumstances influenced the unsaved, those who were near him and those who were on the periphery. He also knew that his circumstances influenced the saved, those with good motives, and then secondly, those with poor motives. In God's goodness, he even uses our difficult circumstances to influence those who have poor motives, people who Paul describes as envious, selfish, and intentionally trying to cause harm. Christians, not false teachers, teaching the gospel, but being selfish Christians, God even impacts them. Paul's circumstances were bad, as I've described, and there were some jealous Christians trying to take advantage of that situation. Even in that, which seems terribly difficult to understand, the Apostle Paul was suffering, and there's Christians on the outside of the jail trying to take advantage of that. But even in that, Paul was joyful, and God was glorified. We don't really know what the details were of these scuffles, except for what's written here. What stands out, of course, is Paul's reaction to those scuffles. He was joyful, happy that the gospel was moving forward, rejoicing in what they were doing, as sinful as it was. This type of attitude isn't foreign to us, I don't think, in our day. Wherever there are sinful people, there will always be sinful attitudes, right? Even in churches. You would think that of all people, Christians would recognize the importance of living for the glory of God instead of the glory of self. Pastors vying for local supremacy, you know, my church is bigger than yours, etc. Youth leaders vying for the attention of teenagers within the same youth group and other petty things that are going on in churches on a weekly basis is unfortunately common, more common than we would wish. This all boils down to prideful, selfish attempts to be the top dog, looking for more attention than the next guy. As if servants of Christ who are gifted by God and blessed by God really have anything to do with their success at all. Paul's response here illustrates what kind of attitude we ought to have in ministry settings when others are trying to get the spotlight for some reason and others do get the spotlight for some reason. No doubt, I think this probably hurt Paul's feelings. I mean, he's a normal guy. But because of his godly character, which included humility, dependence, love, patience, gentleness, Paul focused on sharing the gospel, on, on giving Christ the glory. He, he actually rejoiced in the success of other ministries because the gospel was being preached, even if they had false motives. Paul's humility allowed him to genuinely be happy for their success because the progress of the gospel message. Along with these awkward ministry motives, there also are the regular issues of life that cause similar challenges to each of us. We tend to compare ourselves with each other, don't we? We want to be considered successful in our finances, in our child rearing, in our vocation, hobbies, etc., no one likes to feel less than others, so we make sure that we don't. Paul's response gives the secret to getting past feelings of jealousy and envy in, in any setting, whether it's in ministry or in home or in vocation. 
Paul's attitude, very helpful. Let me repeat it for you. Keep your eye on the cause of Christ. Keep your eye on the cause of Christ, not on the cause of John or Betty, on the cause of Christ. Secondly, remember that we as Christians are partners in the gospel. We are all partners in the same gospel with the same objective. And as gospel partners, thirdly, any success, whether in family, church, vocation, is a blessing and a victory for all of us. When you do well, I can rejoice because it means we are doing well. When your kids do well, I can rejoice that your kids are doing well because we are partners in the gospel. And when your kids do well, the gospel goes forth. When you get a raise at work, we can all rejoice because you're partners in the same gospel objective. We can actually be genuinely happy for one another because we're partners in the gospel. When you do well, we do well. It's a basic principle of business. It actually works in the church. Maybe it works in business because it works in the church. You friends, our feeble ego is very insignificant compared to the glory of Christ in the gospel message, don't you think? Our lives are about him, not about us. If he is exalted, we rejoice along with Paul. What keeps us from being obsessed with mundane, earthly, temporary things like money, status, success, reputation is not how we measure up to one another, but how we view them in relation to the cause or advance of the gospel. Question, am I advancing the gospel? Am I joyfully advancing the gospel? Am I cutting, hacking, and straining for the cause of Christ in my world? Are you? The story of John Bunyan is a great illustration of this. He was a very popular preacher. His critics were very jealous of his success to the point where the leaders of the Church of England placed him under arrest and threw him in jail. And then Bunyan began to shine in jail. People liked his preaching, and they were very sad to hear that he was in jail. So Bunyan started preaching in the jail courtyard every single day. And all the prisoners would gather around and listen to his preaching. What the authorities didn't anticipate is his voice could carry over the walls. <laughs> and hundreds every single day gathered around the prison to hear Bunyan preach. More than that he was preaching to before he went to prison. There's always an attraction to prisoners. I don't know what it is, but there is. Hey, this guy's preaching. Let's go listen. And this upset the authorities, as you can imagine. So they threw him in the deepest, darkest dungeon they could find in their prison. And he continued to preach by shouting up the stairwell. This guy was an obnoxious guy. But that's not where or what we remember Bunyan for, is it? How many of you knew that story? How many of you know who wrote Pilgrim's Progress? All of us. It was from that dungeon where Bunyan began to write prolifically. 
Do you think God was in charge of that? Oh, poor Bunyan. No. God sent John Bunyan to prison. So that in those dire circumstances, he could write. Of course, we know the story of Pilgrim's Progress, second most reprinted and distributed book in human history, right behind the Bible. Bunyan had to cut, hack, and strain for the gospel message to advance. Bunyan could relate to Paul. Look, look at this in verse 16, what Paul says. Bunyan could relate to this. The latter do it, that is, preach the gospel out of love, knowing that I am put here. If you have a pencil or something with you, circle those words, put here. Those words are put there for a very important reason. Put here for the defense of the gospel is a powerful statement. When used by military personnel, it referred, those words referred to a special military assignment given to a soldier, a critical assignment. You've got to get this done. You can't fail. That's the word that Paul chose to include in this verse. He was put here on a special assignment. That doesn't sound like arbitrary random chance, does it? It's not. It was designed by an all-knowing, loving, sovereign God who knew exactly what he was doing with Paul and with John Bunyan and with you. You're experiencing what you're experiencing. The trials you're facing, the difficulties you have are no different than Paul's or Bunyan's. They're designed by God to accomplish his purpose. What is there to be unhappy about? Friends, just like the five missionaries in Ecuador who gave up their lives, just like Bunyan and Paul, God has placed you right where you are for specific things. Don't miss them. God's, God wants you to be where you are, endure what you're, what you're in joyfully so that you will be a magnetic attraction for the gospel to everyone in your life and those beyond your immediate family, beyond those immediate circles, to those on the periphery. Your joyful, godly attitude in difficulty is one of the most powerful tools in the hands of God to bring about his will in the lives of those that you influence. Starting with your children, your spouse, moving outward to those who are closest to you in this church or in your neighborhood or at your place of employment, then these all will pass along your supernaturally joyful attitude and message to those they know, just like the Imperial Guards did. It's a ripple effect that we'll not know the full extent of until we spend some time in heaven and all the reports come home. What a glorious day that will be, won't it? Remembering the things that we've suffered and seeing the way God used those things to bring about his glory and the salvation, the transformation of his people. I can't think of a greater thing.
Let's pray. Lord, because of who we are, we sometimes lose sight of important things. We at times get so consumed with our discomfort or things we think we're missing out on that we fail to realize that the very place we're in is the place that you've designed for us to be. Help us not miss this, Father. Holy Spirit, bring this to our clear understanding that you, by your sovereign will, have placed us where we are for the cause of Christ, for the glory of Jesus, our Savior. Help us to live here where we are joyfully. Help us to look forward to that day when we will be able to exhibit joy because of the fact that you are using our lives to bring others to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, even in difficulty. God, help us not live life <laughs> confused about what it's about. Father, use us for your glory. Use us for the glory of your Son. Holy Spirit, um, remind us of these things when we're tempted to feel sorry for ourselves or complain about our circumstances. God, we want to bring you glory and praise. We want to hear when we see you face to face, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your Lord. Make this so, Father. Make this so, Spirit. Make this so, Jesus, our Savior. We pray these things to you. Amen.